But if you want to hear about uh, HIV AIDS in the developing world, you're in the right place. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Dear God, we just come before you and we recognize that you are the author and creator of this day and uh, of each one of us and that you have created us and you have called us your children and you have specific plans for each one of us in the room, plans to prosper us and um, plans for a future and hope, plans to prosper and uh, not to harm. And Lord, I just put this session and this day into your hands that uh, whatever you have given to us in terms of our intelligence, our minds, hearts, our gifting, and our experience and our training, that we can take all that and turn it right back over to you and say, use it, Lord. Use it for your glory. And uh, Father, teach us. We all have lessons to learn, and I pray that your words will be spoken, that we'll all have uh, ears to hear what you would have us to hear. And uh, we give you glory today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm Dr. Susie Snyder, and this session is Case Studies in HIV-AIDS. I've been a medical missionary working with Christian Missionary Fellowship over a 16-year span, and uh, now I'm back in the U.S. as the Director of Member Care and Affiliation for CMF. I also hold a faculty position at Vanderbilt, um, Assistant Clinical Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics. I've also been a guest lecturer of uh, the GOMEDS uh, preceptorship um, that is sponsored by the Medical Strategic Network. And uh, if you are a student, uh, medical, nursing, pharmacy, OTPT, PA, NP, any of those varieties of health professional, and if you're interested in learning more about how to give whole person care, how to take a spiritual history, how to um, address, to be aware of patients' spiritual needs, and addressing those as well as their physical needs, and you'd like to do a summer elective, yes, for credit, um, check this group out. They've got an excellent summer program, and I strongly recommend it. They've got uh, a booth downstairs. We're going to be looking at several different case studies uh, that highlight the medical features of HIV-AIDS in the developing world, looking at medical um, components and issues, but also particularly the social and cultural aspects and the challenges that they present. This is meant to be an interactive session, um, and it's kind of a big room, but I think it's workable. Uh, So uh, along the way, I'll be asking some questions, and yes, I really do want you to to speak up. Those of you in the back, you may have to jump up and down and yell, but um, I want us to learn from each other. Yes, I've lived and worked in Kenya for uh, numerous years, and yes, I have taken care of AIDS patients, and my talk primarily comes from my experience, but there are others here who are more expert than I am, so feel free to speak up, and we'll learn from each other. Just a little background, Uh, my husband Dave and my daughters Rebecca and Lauren and I served with Christian Missionary Fellowship uh, in Kenya, East Africa over 16 years uh, with the Maasai tribe. We lived for seven years out in the bush among the Maasai people. They're a very traditional people group, still living in mud and dung homes with no electricity or uh, running water. Um, Definitely a lot of health and social needs, but a very hospitable and colorful and uh, wonderful people group that we've made a lot of friends with. We were serving on a team of church planters, Uh, So primarily involved in um, preaching, teaching, evangelism, building churches, and and Christian leadership training. I was the only doctor on our team, so our family focused on the medical ministries, and that included oversight of 
several bush clinics. We started out with five when we first got there. There are now eight. And uh, at this point, um, this clinic system sees about 70,000 patients a year. So it's a, it's a big operation. But the facilities are still very small. Um, I'm sorry for the kind of crackling I'm getting here. Um, these buildings are four to five room stone buildings, very simple, very rudimentary. Uh, they have running, uh, they have rain tanks for water, solar power for electricity, no x-ray, no lab, very, well, um, no, no surgical facilities, very little lab. Uh, we were able to do some things. Uh, we have microscopes and um, it's, it's amazing what they'll do. They have a full complement of ambulatory services. Um, they'll do surgeries, anything they can do under local, they'll give it a try. They pull teeth, uh, give dental care, um, a full immunization program, and antenatal care, too. Uh, at this point, fully run by Christian Maasai health professionals, nurses, and clinical officers. And like I said, uh, serve about 75,000 patients a year. They're the only medical facilities in the communities in which they serve, so they provide a real service to the people there. Now, in the first 10 years that I worked there, I saw very few uh, AIDS cases. This was in the early 90s. We didn't have testing available, and uh, we knew, though, that it was a ticking time bomb. When we finally were able to get HIV testing, we did some sampling and found that the prevalence was about 10%. Uh, so we knew it was out there, and there are a lot of cultural practices that, was, that were going to help with the transmission, unfortunately. Uh, so we had a lot of work ahead of us. Over the ensuing um, years, late 90s, um, the, the wave of the epidemic hit us, and every time I went to work in the clinic, I saw three or four new cases. Um, at this point, with uh, 10 to 15% prevalence, it's a very, very significant problem, a medical problem, but also creates social, economic, uh, and community problems. Um, definitely a crisis. The statistics really are kind of hard, and I tried to get some updates on this, and there are a lot of groups out there that really have stopped trying to do yearly statistics because it's just so slippery to try to get a handle on. Um, but still, uh, one, of the one of the largest epidemics, uh, pandemics that uh, we have seen uh, with millions who have died and uh, left orphan. Year by year, the trends look like they're maybe improving and going down, but still, you've got probably 2 million people dying every year and uh, another 2.5 um, becoming newly infected. Um, that's better than 5 to 10 years ago, but still, it's just astounding. And uh, globally, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is still uh, where about two-thirds to 75% of the statistics are, so those of us who work there are keenly aware of the crisis and the needs. But I see people, and uh, when I'm taking care of patients, it's one by one, and I think it's important for us, even though the statistics are astounding, to realize that behind every statistic is a person um, with a soul and a heart and a family, and uh, we have to, to deal with them individually. So let's look at some of these cases and see what we can learn. Um, a church pastor, a Maasai church pastor, and his wife brought their 20-month year old boy to the clinic uh, for me to see and they were complaining that he had knots in his neck and uh, they had been there about six months they had taken the child to traditional healers and several other clinics he had gone through several rounds of antibiotics and these these knots just would not go away he was also not growing very well he had kind of a skin rash um, and he was not playing with the other children 
Uh, on exam, his skin was kind of dry and scaly. You can notice the perlesh, the cracking at the uh, corners of the mouth. On the inside, there were white plaques on his oral mucosa. Um, conjunctiva were very pale. And um, uh, on the neck exam, he had two by two centimeter, two by three centimeter uh, lymph nodes on both sides. Not particularly tender, um, but definite. And uh, the child was listless, fairly non-engaging. His weight was about 3% per, for age, and height and weight were 5% for age. Okay. Uh, also had a rash. Um, little papules, particularly on the hands and arms and in the finger webs. The mother confirms that the child scratches at this a lot. Um, also, the mother, who I had known for a long time, didn't look very good. She was kind of thin, uh, also had kind of a scaliness to her skin, and her hair was kind of a sort of sick, burnt orange color. So she was not in good health as well. Okay, what are you thinking? At this point, what ta- lab tests would you like to order? Uh, what diagnoses are kind of going through your mind? Uh, treatment? And what lessons can we learn? Okay, this is where I want you to speak up. What would you like to do if this were your patient? Yes? A CBC, that's very good. At this clinic, I couldn't necessarily get the whole CBC, but I could get a hemoglobin, uh, and uh, that was seven. What's that? An HIV test, yes. We can get an HIV test uh, these days, and it was also positive. An antibody test, uh, we don't have... PCR or viral loads out there, but we could do an antibody test. Yeah. Scabies scraping? Scabies scraping, that would be a great thing to do. Um, and we do such things still. Um, but to take a, a microscope slide and kind of scrape the skin gently, get a few, um, hopefully, some of the material that's in those little papules and look at it under the microscope. And you're right, there were mites. Okay. Any other ideas? Okay, yes. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so what, what are you thinking at this point? You wanted an HIV test and the antibody test is positive. What do you think about that? Yeah, you're thinking the same thing too. Mother to child transmission, absolutely. Now, is this child HIV positive? Does this child, and, and where does he fit in the classification scheme? There's another thing in, what about the mouth, the white plaques in the mouth? Thrush, yeah, it's oral thrush. So in terms of, let's move on to some of the lessons and we'll pull out some of this. Um, the, the nodes, any thoughts on that? It's TB, yeah. Now, here in the States, I'd love to get a chest x-ray and, and um, maybe even gastric aspirate for AFB, a TB skin test. Is the TB skin test going to be very helpful in this child? No, why? What's that? Exactly. This child has probably gotten BCG, so it may react. Now, there's there's a way to kind of measure out the, the number of millimeters and the type of reactions can be helpful. Um, but actually, in our clinic, we, we can't even do PPDs. Um, to get a chest x-ray, anybody want that? If you could, I'd love that answer. Because to send this family into the town to a hospital to get a chest x-ray would cost them about half a year's wages. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So what I chose to do instead is what we, we often do. We pull out the strategy called a therapeutic trial. And um, for big nodes, 
in the NAG that have already gone through decent round of antibiotics and have not responded, it's TB until proven otherwise. Excuse me. And so we put them on TB medications and uh, send them home and have them come back in a month and see if they've gotten better. If they're starting to shrink and they're feeling better, uh, clinically they improve on the TB meds that nails your diagnosis. So you don't necessarily have to go through the other tests. Yes. Doesn't AIDS have or HIV have swollen glands? Yes, that's true. Um, yes, I have seen, yeah, definitely HIV AIDS can have swollen nodes. And, and some of you may pipe up your experience on this. My experience is that the nodes that are swollen with HIV AIDS are much smaller than scrofula, which gives you these big honking nodes. Yeah, and also with, with um, HIV, you'll see... Um, mildly inflamed in large nodes kind of other places, you know, intertricular nodes and groin nodes and axillary nodes. Yeah. Um, just to, to introduce this term scrofula, scrofula is tuberculosis of the nodes. Um, you may have read about that in textbooks. I had read about it but never seen it until I went to Africa. Um, and definitely this child has scabies. And uh, for the person who wanted the, the hemoglobin, um, he's anemic as well. So the medications. Uh, we started this child on TB medications. Uh, we follow the World Health Organization protocol. And at this point, I couldn't tell you just, you know, off the top of my head because it kind of depends on what's available year by year. The recommendations kind of change. But fortunately, we get free uh, TB medications uh, if we follow the, fill out all the right paperwork and uh, can treat uh, folks uh, with tuberculosis with those medications. It's usually four drug um, starting out. And antiretrovirals. Um, amoxicillin, just of note, uh, from that picture of the scabies, it was kind of uh, inflamed and there were some open areas. Benzobenzoate is the treatment for scabies, but I don't necessarily put that on right away because on open lesions it's going to burn like crazy. So we treat the secondary infection first until everything's dry and then put on the benzobenzoate. Um, Vitamin and iron supplements. Definitely this child was also malnourished, uh, anemic, and uh, needed, needed those nutritional aids as well. Just a little bit of review and reminder that HIV is a sexually transmitted disease, that worldwide heterosexual contact is, uh, accounts for 85% or more of the transmission. Mother-to-child transmission, somebody here uh, commented on that in terms of how this child acquired HIV, which is correct, uh, 13 to 15%. About half of that occurs during delivery. Um, Transplacental um, transmission is possible, uh, but it's primarily uh, during the birthing process as the child with a very tender, fragile skin gets microfissures in the birthing process and then is exposed to the mom's blood and body fluids. And then half of that percentage of the mother-to-child transmission occurs through breastfeeding. Um, and this, this is an important um, issue. Uh, we can do um, testing of moms and giving of the antiretroviral medications and bring that percentage, cut it by half. Uh, but sadly, in a lot of places, two to three years out, the mother-to-child transmission rate is still 15% um, because of the breastfeeding issue. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And blood-to-blood contact. Here in the U.S., the number one um, transmission rate is by IV drug abuse and sharing of needles. But worldwide, globally, it's only 3%. It's really fairly small. Um, we have now an antenatal 
program by Kenyon Law. All pregnant women must be tested, which is great. Um, it used to be a huge problem to get pregnant women to agree to be tested and to take um, the varipine treatment. Um, just to go home with those little bottles created stigma. Um, but now it's required by law, so everybody gets tested, and it's not quite uh, the stigma and attached. Uh, this mother, unfortunately, did not go through the program or get tested, and her son's diagnosis was her first clue that she was HIV positive, unfortunately. Um, wrapping up a few of the points here, I asked, you know, is this child HIV positive? With an antibody test, remember that infants um, can have a positive antibody test because of uh, antibodies, maternal antibodies that cross the placenta and go to the baby. So an HIV test that is purely antibody-based in infants may or may not reflect true infection. And uh, you have to go to either PCR or viral loads, something that looks for the actual antigens, the actual virus, to know whether an infant is truly positive or not. But by 20 months of age, I mean, those maternal antibodies are going to degrade within 6 months, 12 months, definitely by 18 months. So by 20 months, the, this child uh, is HIV positive. It's not just maternal origin antibodies. And, yes, this child acquired HIV from his mother uh, perinatally. So the mother's HIV positive. Most likely the father is as well. So we've got a whole family that we need to deal with. Um, just a social comment. I mean, this is a church leader, and I've had people say, goodness, what's going, you know, what is wrong with that? Well, yeah, it, there's, there's something wrong with that picture. Um, are Christians immune to HIV? Obviously not. Um, and in our social setting, what we see is kind of two factors. Uh, people who are acquiring HIV before conversion and entry into the church. But also there's a huge problem with those who are professing Christ but not necessarily living a moral lifestyle or they're continuing uh, behavior practices that are the norm in their culture that uh, continue to spread HIV. So uh, trying to change behavior is extremely difficult. Uh, another teaching point here is that HIV and TB go together, uh, so much so that every single patient who presents with tuberculosis deserves an HIV test. That's true here in the States as well. And uh, those who present with tuberculosis, uh, I'm sorry, both ways, those who present with tuberculosis need an HIV test. Those who are HIV positive should be screened for for tuberculosis. Uh, we have approximately 1,500 patients that we see every month on a monthly basis in our HIV AIDS program, and about half of those are on TB medications. So they definitely travel together. Uh, in this child, we kind of commented on the chest X-ray, whether it would be helpful. Um, actually, uh, scrofula doesn't necessarily have pulmonary disease. It's an extra pulmonary manifestation of tuberculosis. And another teaching point here for this family, this child was kind of delayed in getting treatment, and that's something that we deal with. Um, it's, it's difficult. There are traditional healing practices, and people still use those, even though Western medicine is available, and a lot of times it delays their entry. And people come in a whole lot sicker um, than we would like, and sometimes it's even too late to try to help them. So that's a, that's a burden uh, to deal with culturally. And the stigma as, of AIDS is really huge. In this story, actually, um, this, this is one that's a bit old. Um, I still pull it out because of some of the teaching practices. Um, but the, the clinic staff for this particular child did not want to tell the family that he was HIV positive. 
And the reasoning was because this family, actually, uh, with the mom as a teacher and the dad as a pastor, they, uh, and they had a small business, they actually had enough income. They, they owned a car, which is very unusual for our population. Um, but they had driven themselves to the clinic. And the clinic staff was sincerely concerned that once they found out this news, that they would not get home, that they would run off the road, either intentionally or non-intentionally, that they would be so distraught. Um, we still have a major obstacle uh, in the HIV-AIDS care because of the stigma. There are still communities where when someone is found out to be HIV positive, they're thrown out. Uh, husbands who will send their wives back home in disgrace, um, there, there's a lot of difficulty with the stigma. And in, in trying to provide AIDS treatment and care, it's crucial to, to look at the whole person as you look at each patient and consider some of these cultural and community issues. For us, our AIDS treatment and care um, program includes education. Um, this is actually, this is an old slide. Uh, when our program initially started, we didn't have ARVs. We didn't have a lot of money. All we had was education. And so uh, churches would host seminars for three to five days. The clinic workers, the uh, church leaders, the medical personnel would get together and try to uh, help raise awareness. What is AIDS? What is it not? How do you get it? How do you not? And uh, help encourage people really with the biblical principles of uh, abstinence before marriage and sexual um, faithfulness within marriage as the means to prevent HIV transmission. And that's still the message today. Um, and even today when we have our mobile outreaches and we load up the van, uh, the truck with all of the medical equipment and the medications and all this fancy medical stuff, still part of that is education, going to people and just working with them either as a group or one-on-one -on -one, uh, to try to dispel some of the myths uh, one of the things we found extremely effective is drama, um, getting drama troops together who will write and depict plays of uh, the cultural ways that AIDS is transmitted, and folks can then relate on how this is happening to us. Okay, the next case is a nine-year-old boy who comes in with a rash. Um, he also has some white plaques in his mouth, uh, but notably, and why, why he's complaining, is he's got these ring-type lesions. They're kind of clear in the center and uh, circumscribed circle, scaly on the outer edges. Um, that wouldn't be so profound. What's profound to me is that he's got hundreds of these. They're everywhere. They're on his scalp, his face, his neck, his chest, arms, legs, back. He's covered with these scaly rings. Okay, with that history, uh, what tests are you thinking about you'd like to have? Diagnosis, treatments, lessons. What are your thoughts? What's that? Yes, excellent. She wants to do a KOH prep. Yes, uh, I can do that. Uh, I have a microscope. Uh, I have some microscope slides. And yes, if you take kind of a scraping of the skin, do a KOH on it. And what do you what do you think you're going to see? Um, fungal hyphae. Fungal Yes, yes. Okay. And your diagnosis? Uh, Tinea corporis. Yes. This is ringworm. Not, not much special about ringworm. We have ringworm here. Um, and, uh, yes, this, this is um, tinea corporis. Now, um, there's some other things that were kind of going on with this child. Any other tests or thoughts? You want an HIV test? Absolutely. Why? Who, who answered? What's that? 
Immunocompromised. He's immunocompromised, exactly. What tells you that? And he's got it everywhere. Yes, you, you read my notes. Okay, exactly. Um, just another look at, okay, go backwards. Okay, there we go. Um, one of the points I wanted to make here, so often um, AIDS patients will get rashes. A lot of times they're common rashes but, uh, and ordinary things, but with extraordinary presentations. And uh, a lot of the times when I'm working with interns and these people come in, it's just like, it's just overwhelming uh, the, the amount of rash they've got. So what I tell them is, okay, try to you know, tunnel vision in on one segment, on one of the lesions, and think about what that is, and then it kind of helps to discern it. So if you kind of focus in on, yeah, one of these lesions, you get the, you get the uh, uh, circular uh, scaly with the central clearing, and uh, that's pretty classic for tinea corporis. Another patient with tinea corporis, and it's just everywhere, uh, scalp, arms, legs. This patient had probably a 1,000 lesions. It was just immense and uh, miserable. They're just, they're just miserable with it. Um, this we had from the previous patient, scabies, also rather common uh, type of problem. I see, I see ringworm here in the States. I see scabies here in the States. But usually it's just limited. You know, we see it in kids, and they're scratching. They've got it in the finger webs. But patients with HIV will get it head to toe. Just every inch of body is covered with this stuff, and it is miserable. Another uh, HIV-positive patient with a staph strep infection little pustules just body-wide. Okay. A um, couple of the, the points here. Well, in the, in the first case, um, oral mucosa with white plaques also had thrush. Um, the fact that he had thrush, the fact that he had this extensive rash kind of give you clues that he's immunosuppressed, yes. And any patient in this setting deserves an HIV test when you think about immunosuppression. Um, and there's multiple things going wrong, too. The, the child uh, that initially with the tinea corporis uh, had uh, some intestinal discomfort and uh, also uh, had worms and uh, pale conjunctiva. So he's got anemia going on. A lot of these folks with the HIV, they may have vitamin deficiencies. They may be iron deficient. Um, and so they need a multifactorial treatment. Kind of one of the take-home messages uh, is that HIV-AIDS patients often have multiple problems going on all at once. Uh, so their treatment needs to be multifactorial. Um, so definitely whatever appropriate treatment for the skin. Now, here in the States, what do you use for tinea corporis? What's that? Topicals, exactly. Lotrimin, clotrimazole, we got a whole bunch of them, and they're all good. Topical, yeah, because generally most people have just one ring or maybe two, so use topical. Well, can, is that going to work when you have it head to toe? No. So in, in our clinic situation, uh, we don't have a lot of oral antifungals available. We do have griseofulvin, um, but basically you have to treat these people uh, with oral medications. And definitely the ARVs. Um, and a lot of these other illnesses will kind of start to diminish once um, the HIV is under better control. Yes? How expensive is it to maintain an ARV Wow. How expensive is it to maintain an ARV regimen? That's an excellent question. Um, I'm not going to be able to pull that off the top of my head. Um, 
we have we're in a program where we actually have grant funding uh, from the U.S. USAID PEPFAR grant. So you may be familiar with President Bush and the PEPFAR grants that started about 2004 or so uh, to provide HIV/AIDS treatment and care to African countries. Um, so fortunately, as we're connected into that, we get our ARVs free. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot more involved in, than just giving the ARV treatment, the medications. Um, those people have to be followed regularly. And generally, there's very tight control on the medications. They're given only a month at a time, so people have to come back every month. Uh, so for people who live 8 to 10 hours walking distance away, to come into the clinic every month to be reviewed, to be reweighed, to check on them, um, it's, it's a big sacrifice. It costs a lot of money, and it's, a, it's an obstacle, actually, for care. Uh, we have a problem with attrition, people falling off, because it's just too hard to get in every month for treatment. So we've had to be creative in how we do our program, and actually, at this point, a lot of it, we take it to the people, and uh, we do village care. So the cost involves vehicles and maintenance of the vehicles and fuel, uh, the transportation to take the program to them. Um, there's also the fact that in Kenya, at least, uh, all HIV-AIDS patients get free care by law. So they get the ARVs. We get those through the government, U.S. government FEPFAR grant funding. But um, like as of last year, that grant didn't necessarily cover all the medications for the opportunistic infections. So you've got people who get a monthly visit, usually always have at least something that's going on, and Honestly, if they can make it to the clinic, they usually come in at least two or three times a month. So you've got those visits. Um, you've got the Bactrim prophylaxis, um, and you've got the treatment for the diarrhea and for the skin and this and that. So bottom line, it adds up. Yeah. It's, it's not cheap, even though it's supposed to be free. And, uh, and, and that's where a lot of times the... the uh, Church-related clinics and ministries that provide about two-thirds of the medical care in Kenya um, fill in the gap in a lot of ways. Okay, that's moving on. Um, yeah, just take-home message here that unusual rashes in HIV may actually be ordinary rashes but with extraordinary presentations. They're more extenuated, more widespread, uh, more miserable usually. Another take-home message I want to stress is that adequate nutrition is critical in AIDS care. Um, particularly, ARVs are not going to work if the person is malnourished, uh, either with HIV neuropathy and um, uh, absorption, malabsorption or absorption and digestion that doesn't work quite as well, or the fact that there's social implications. A lot of these people... As they present to us, most often they're coming sort of as a last-ditch effort. They've tried the traditional remedies. They've tried going to other clinics, and, you know, they've tried to treat each illness as it pops up and hoping for a cure. And so a lot of folks, by the time they get to us, they have exhausted their resources. They've sold all their animals. Um, they've used whatever they had to get treatments and, and healing, and they just keep getting ill. And uh, so very often they're destitute. Uh, which means then they're often malnourished. They aren't getting enough food. And so for the ARVs to work, you have to improve the nutritional status. Um, so food is actually a part of the, the treatment and care program. And um, 
kind of depending on the season, we've been able to get the, the, the grant money to also give food. Or different organizations like UNICEF and USAID have come in to also provide maize meal and such um, for the AIDS patients. Well, this sounds great. I mean, like, woohoo! This is this is wonderful. Now we can actually feed people and get their nutritional status better. The ARVs will work better. Uh, it's a happy story, right? Not if they won't take the food home. There have been times where people have refused the food. It's free food, but to carry that bag of maize meal, rice, and beans and flour out of the clinic labels them as an AIDS patient. And even trying to put it under their wraps or whatever, uh, if anybody sees them carrying that bag, then they're labeled an AIDS patient and then ostracized. So a lot of social issues to consider in what should be medical treatment, Uh, a medical issue that also has social and emotional and mental and spiritual problems. She's asking, what is the stigma? It's multifold. It, a fear of getting it, yes. Um, there are a lot of myths with HIV/AIDS. Um, there's a general belief that it's a death sentence. You know, that uh, well, for many years it was, and um, there wasn't a lot of hope. Now we actually, with the ARVs, we are, you know, we're seeing people getting better. And, uh, and particularly through the AIDS support programs where they can get together every month and they can see folks who are getting stronger and are going back to work and are managing as a chronic illness that hope is slowly coming up. And, and with the hope, then, there's a little bit more willingness to get involved in the program. So it's kind of a, you know, a cyclical problem. Yeah. Um, there are myths of it being a curse. So there's a spiritual component to it. Okay, um, take-home message that HIV-AIDS patients have multiple problems, uh, so treatment has to be multimodal, not just throwing ARV medications at them, but considering um, the opportunistic infections, the prophylaxis for that, the treatment as illnesses come along, the food, the nutritional, as well as emotional support and spiritual support. Okay, next uh, case is Nolari. She's a 28-year-old lady. Uh, When I went to visit her, um, her neighbor ladies carried her uh, outside and laid her on a cow skin uh, on the outside of her house, and she was just so emaciated, a skeleton with skin on, and she was listless. She really wasn't engaging. She couldn't really follow commands very well. She was too weak to walk. very dry uh, mouth, definitely dehydrated. Um, her children, as well as her co-wife's children, uh, surrounded the cooking fire and smiled at me, wondering if I was going to give them anything to eat that day because all they had uh, was tea. Um, the three other co-wives had died already, and so Nalari was responsible for her children as well as her co-wife's children. When I went outside, it was very obvious to me that there was – there were no animals out there, which is just not the way a Maasai village looks. There's always animals. There's always goats and cows and sheep. There was nobody. There was nothing out there. There were no cows. There were no sheep, no goats. Um, everything had already been sold, trying to get treatment for the previous wives who had died. Uh, Nolari's husband uh, was okay. He was alive and well, but he didn't like to come home. Um, he came home only occasionally because he was ashamed of her even though he was the one who had passed on this disease to his wives. Okay. Um, Labs 
tests that you would like to get? What diagnoses are you considering, treatment, and lessons to learn? What are your thoughts on her? What's that? Kwashakor. She's malnourished for sure. Yes. Yeah. They, they don't have anything to eat. They're malnourished. Yeah. HIV test? Yes. Yeah. Um, we couldn't get one on her. So um, what are we going to do for treatment if we don't have an HIV test? Well, at this point, um, we made the clinical diagnosis and started her on ARVs, and we were able to get uh, blood and sample it later for confirmation. So, yes, she is HIV positive. Any other tests you'd like to get? I'll take your silence. At, oh, yes. Yeah, good point. She wants to test everybody else in the household. That's a very good point, actually. Um, every, yeah, every family member deserves testing. And at this point, the clinic workers would actually work toward that. It would probably take multiple visits um, to come back and try to nail down the husband and talk him into testing and to test. Probably could get all the t- children tested pretty easily. Um, but you're absolutely right. Trying to catch people early. Um, and get them staged and hopefully into the AIDS treatment and care program right away. Those who are positive get them started on prophylactic medications and then depending on their staging, uh, ARVs potentially for sure. Yeah. Okay. Stool for parasites, parasites. excellent. Yeah, she definitely deserves that. And um, at this point, whether I had uh, the testing to confirm it or not, I would be treating everybody there with mabendazole. I'd treat everybody for worms. Yep. Just hand it out. Um, definitely uh, food, nutrition is needed, uh, ARVs. In terms of diagnosis, um, she does have AIDS, and uh, she's got what's called SLIMS disease, the, the classic uh, HIV AIDS wasting illness. Now, the dementia, the not following very well, um, potentially meningitis, encephalitis, tuberculosis, um, a lot of other organisms are possible. Um, would love to do, you know, CT scan or MRI, would love to get spinal fluid. <laughs> Great. Good luck. Um, so what we did, uh, she, if we had a way of testing for tuberculosis, if we had a way of getting a, a chest X-ray or PPD or any kind of sampling, sputum or something, and testing for AFB, she deserves to be screened for tuberculosis, yes. Uh, fortunately for her case, just on ARVs alone, she got better. So that kind of eliminated the other uh, by exclusion. And she's a happy ending because the clinic workers came to her house every day by bicycle to give her uh, DOT therapy, direct observed therapy, um, for a month until she was stronger and could get to the clinic on her own. Um, So definitely uh, ARV medications was uh, important, and uh, I talked a little bit about the grant funding that we've been able to get. That has not been easy. Um, It started in 2004. It took a full year for us to qualify. We had to retrain our staff. We had to do refurbishing of the clinic facilities. We had to build in privacy walls and a special locked pharmacy and jump a bunch of hoops. And we have to hire a lot of extra people, uh, trained uh, voluntary counseling and testing VCT, uh, 
counselors, social workers, an accountant, uh, chaplain, um, pharmacy tech, lab tech, a lot of hoops that we have to jump in order to qualify for the program. But um, my clinic workers have assured me that it's worth the effort um, because we do have, um, I think, oh, through the years they've probably had about 2,500 patients, uh, 1,500 that they follow regularly now, which means weekly, uh, I'm sorry, monthly visits, uh, and then patients can come in any time and be seen for any complaint or problem. And uh, it's really... Uh, full whole person care. Uh, the ARV medications for sure are part of that, and the prophylactic medications and, and information on how to deal with those. But we put a lot of emphasis on our social workers and our chaplain working with these people. We have aid support groups. We try to get everybody involved in those so that they can come every month and see other people and get involved. And um, the clinic workers and social workers will do Bible studies um, pray with the patients, counsel with them, visit them in their homes, and encourage them to get involved in the local church. So it's an active evangelistic program, really. Yes? What is the church specifically doing to address the problem? Because we realize there are a lot of cultural issues that make this a bigger problem than it is here. But like those cultural issues can't just be changed by teaching. They need the Christ-changing people's hearts. Yeah. So how do they address that, and how do they address that, like, culturally? Because, like, we might think, okay, just abstain, but that's, it means something different to them. What mm-hmm. do they do for that? That's a very good question. What, is, what can the church do uh, to be involved in AIDS treatment and care and make a difference? That's kind of what I hear you saying. Wow. That's a critical question, and it's a difficult question. And I think in some ways the best answer is, the church can do a lot. I mean, there's just a, there's a ton, and the church should be involved. It's um, complex and requires an integration, and it also requires a lot of time. From my experience, it's taken years. Um, but having church leaders and so kind of a, a combination or integration of uh, clinic, medical, and church, spiritual, getting those together, uh, is is important. What I have found in working with African cultures, and I've seen this uh, other places of the world too, that um, get outside of American Western mindset, most people do integrate mind and body and heart and soul. They the the physical and the spiritual are together, whereas we tend to kind of pigeonhole them and separate them out. So for them to realize that there's spiritual dynamics in any illness is more natural for them. So what we've done is actually uh, integrated our church leaders into the clinic work. Um, an example would be that when the when the um, CDC grant money for the AIDS uh, the ARV program began, they were requiring uh, trained VCT counselors. So what my clinic administrator did was he took some of the church leaders and elders who had a decent enough education recruited them, sent them into the capital city for the training so they could get their certificate, and now he hires them as the VCT counselors. But their, their first call, their first love, is as a pastor or elder of the church. So they naturally see what they do as a ministry. Yeah. Um, integrating the Bible. Um, generally, every day starts with devotions. Every aid support group meeting starts with devotions. They see that much more naturally than what we do. Anyway, it's a it's a complex 
Another factor, this, yeah, this is a good example, um, AIDS home-based care, a really critical component to our program, and really what saved Nolari's life is that she was a recipient of home-based care. And uh, people from the community from the church visited her. Some ladies from the community came in. They carried firewood and water. They cooked. They actually hand-fed her for weeks until she was strong enough that she could take care of herself and uh, start to cook and, and manage her children on her own. The home-based care is where uh, church leaders, uh, clinic leaders, and very often they're one and the same, uh, will go and visit people in their homes. Um, they can talk to them. They can um, deal with uh, common physical complaints, um, do counseling, um, spiritual guidance, prayer, and uh, definitely it's, it's a, uh, a, a component to helping the community not to ostracize the, those people but to keep them included in the community and to care for them. And really, it's become a, a tremendous evangelistic tool. As people are cared for uh, and included, they, they tend to get, then get involved in the church and um, make it a part of their lives. Uh, you may have heard the medical term, the Lazarus effect, and Olaria is an example of that. She went from a walking corpse to a healthy, beautiful lady who's now caring for her family. All right. This, um, I have to kind of do this one quickly. This is a, this is a very fun one, and I, wanna, I don't want to lose this. Um, this is Mary, and she came in. She was from the village of Issachon, uh, complained of epigastric pain. And um, take-home message here, uh, for a person in this setting has epigastric pain, what would you, what's the diagnostic test? What would you want to do? An abdominal exam. Not a bad choice. An oral exam. Do an oral exam. I tell all my interns, if you've got anybody in this setting with epigastric pain, look in their mouth. If you see oral thrush, duh, it's easy. Um, they've probably got uh, candida esophagitis, and they need an HIV test, and then you go from there. So um, she had oral thrush. She had HIV positive. Uh, she was from the village of Yusukon. That was almost more important to the clinic worker than the rest. And he was kind of like, Yusukon. Well, that's odd because just a month ago, we saw another lady from the same small village uh, with some problem, a rash or something, ended up being HIV positive. He went back to the books. Two weeks before that was another patient from Isirkan. Three HIV positive patients within a month and a half from the same village. And uh, he went to the clinic administrator and said, uh, maybe we need to go find this village. What's going on in Isirkan? So uh, they did. They, uh, it, was, it was quite remote. They had to get directions. Um, they packed up the truck, and they wound around through the bush to find this little village. And uh, when they got there, it was, it was pretty amazing. And I'll, for time's sake, just kind of get to the bottom line. Um, it was a season of drought, a very, very severe drought a couple of years ago. Uh, this village had no water. They were having to walk several miles to get water, having to carry it. Um, you can imagine hygiene had gone down. Uh, daily bathing had gone out the window, and, uh, the, and all the men had moved, the cows. So the men were gone. They took the cows off to greener pastures, and the women, the older people, the children were left behind with a few goats and, uh, and no water. Um, no water, very little hygiene, um, or hygiene that had gotten really poor, men that were absent, um, and children that were, that were suffering. Um, most dramatic snapshot was uh, as the clinic workers walked around the village, 
they saw a line of people sitting along the fence. And notably, many of the children and, and adults had sores, these, these big circular nodules on their feet and toes. And uh, this child couldn't even walk. Um, definitely a lot of malnourishment going on, too. hope you can see this in the slide. But these, these kind of escarred areas of the toes. And as they were sitting along the fence line, the community, the, this village, had one hypodermic needle. And um, someone would scrape out this nodule from a toe because it was very painful. And then as they kind of dug out their nodule, then they'd hand the needle to the next person. And they would dig out the nodule from their foot and have the needle to the next person. Yeah, from the, from the groans in the audience, I think you can see what's going on, that this was a um, sharing needles, blood-to-blood contact that uh, was transmitting HIV. Another close-up shot. What is it? This is jiggers, um, basically a flea infestation. And uh, the larvae are buried under the skin, lay their eggs, and then this egg sac creates this huge painful nodule uh, that's just unbearable, so they would dig those things out. Um, so kind of the, the bottom line uh, take-home message here is, yeah, yes, this is a medical problem, HIV, but there's these underlying problems that really relate to poverty and uh, lack of water and um, the flea infestation, the jiggers. So malnutrition, vitamin deficiencies, intestinal worms, yeah, the kids had all those too because of lack of water. Um, the sodium permanganate and Vaseline was the treatment. Um, the clinic workers came back several, several times over several months to basically soak all the feet uh, and hands, whatever affected areas that would sterilize the skin, they put on the Vaseline, that would suffocate the jiggers, and then they'd come back for other treatments. They brought the county services in. The government came in to spray the homes to get rid of the fleas. Um, very Several different factors in the treatment program. First, a feeding program, taking food into the area. Um, goat restocking um, to try to improve the, the level of income. And then this coming year, they're hoping to dig a well. Uh, and get them water. So HIV, yes. A medical problem, yes. But with all these other issues as well. Okay. I think at this point I probably better close. Uh, we're at the uh, close of our time. And if you have any other questions, uh, I'll be around. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.